privilege to be with you this morning and uh, to get to talk to you about discipleship in the home specifically. This is a, a grand privilege of ours as men, husbands, fathers, and um, I'm, I'm so grateful we can discuss it together. Let me pray and then we'll, we'll get started. Lord, we pause again and give you thanks. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to um, put to mind uh, these, these important ideas about discipleship, uh, that we might truly be faithful and prove ourselves, uh, um, prove ourselves faithful to you in the way we live, in the way we lead our families, in the way we love, in the way we worship. I thank you for these men, for their households, uh, for this church. Lord, uh, we pray even now uh, for you to use this series of discipleship training uh, lectures to further your kingdom in, uh, in us individually, but also in our church and our community. So be with us now. Teach us in Christ's name. Amen. I guess I will go ahead and talk about books real quickly. Um, Two books I recommend as a, uh, what I would consider a canon of uh, family worship books. Uh, that is uh, James Alexander's book. He was a, a 20, uh, 19th century uh, Presbyterian minister. Thoughts on family worship. I'm sure you guys, if you've been in reform circles long, you've probably seen this book. Um, it's foundational. And I would encourage all of you, fathers and husbands or prospective fathers and husbands, to to read this, and also Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry has a work on family worship, and I forget the title off the top of my head. I only have it digitally, so I don't have a copy of it here. Um, does anyone know the title of his family worship book, Matthew Henry? Can't, can't think of the name. But anyway, those two, I would say, uh, foundation. Uh, there's also another book, uh, which is somewhat dated now, but it's by Larry Christensen, who was a, a, a Presbyterian minister, called The Christian Family. And you can tell this is an old version. We don't do book covers like this anymore. Uh, but the Christian family, there's a lot of great insight and wisdom in here. Uh, and it's really fun to read. We, we read it as a family last year together and as part of our family worship. And the kids even enjoyed this book. So that tells you something. Um, Christensen, is, uh, he, he leans toward the charismatic side on a, a number of issues. And it only comes up in this book a little bit, especially when it deals with the priesthood of parents. Uh, so I don't agree with everything he says theologically, but he's still a lot of wisdom, a lot of wisdom in here. Um, all of Doug Wilson's work on the family, he's got a whole series of, of books um, that I'm sure many of you have read or at least seen. I recommend them all to you. Uh, and then uh, Kent Hughes, who is more a little more broadly evangelical, he has a couple of he has a series as well on the family and husbands and wives, disciplines of a godly family. A lot of good insight and wisdom here, very practical. Uh, Disciplines of a Godly Man, and even has a companion one that his wife wrote for women. I recommend those as well. I want to start my talk here just with some rhetorical questions. I want you to just think through these questions with me. These are kind of like self-assessment type questions, questions that I'm. you can tell I'm, I'm going somewhere maybe with them or maybe hinting at something. Some of them you're going to think are unfair. Um, some of them may make you feel guilty. I don't know what, they're, what response they're gonna, what you're going to have to them, uh, but it doesn't matter. Uh, if the shoe fits, wear it. These are just questions I want to open up with. I want, you to be, I want you to be thinking about some of these things, or at least thinking in these terms when we talk about family worship. And 
When I say you any time today, I really mean us, me included. Uh, I, I am no way an expert or even, I was telling my wife, I don't really feel qualified to speak on this subject because I am definitely a student when it comes to um, discipleship in the home. But I do want to learn and get better at it. And I think we, we share the same uh, desires there. So when I say you, I really mean we. I'm not, this is not Roy to everybody else. So what word or words would you use to describe the culture of your home? What comes to mind? And now I want you to maybe compare something. Some words may have, may have come to mind in just this brief few seconds. And I want you to compare now with those words or that word, what you would, what you would use, what words you would use to describe what you want or think should be used to describe the culture of your home. Are there discrepancies between those words? And if so, what makes the difference between them? What's the difference in, in between the, what, the way things are in your home and the way things you think they should be? Is there a discrepancy and, and what it, what's the difference? How would you define your responsibilities as a husband and father? What does that mean to you? In what terms do you primarily understand your roles in these capacities? What does God require of men in these capacities? Could you summarize the biblical teaching on this subject? What sorts of activities characterize the liturgy of your family life? What do you do as a family? Does prayer and spiritual instruction play predominantly into this liturgy? Would you say that you're cultivating a love for the things of God in those under your charge? Do you pray with and for your children on a regular basis? When was the last time you prayed privately with your wife, hand in hand, to ask God to strengthen the marriage bond between you two in all of its facets and also to give wisdom and strength for the work of faithful child rearing. Can you recall a time that you've done that recently? What does discipline and correction look like in your home? Even the occasional correction of your wife. Is it accompanied with prayer and affection and preceded by a storehouse of Godly respect? Is it rooted in a desire for maturity and greater faithfulness to the Lord? When's the last time your family happened upon you in private prayer or study? Is it clear to them that dad or husband longs for the things of God and not the things of the world? Is that what your children and wife say about you? Does your family like being together? Or do you just tolerate each other out of an obligation or necessity? Is there joy in your home that's really palpable? Can you feel it? Do guests in your home have any doubt that you identify and truly live for something beyond yourself and your stuff? Do they know this by being in your presence? Does your family under your leadership understand the value of meaningful work? Is there an inordinate amount of passivity and leisure in your home? 
Is the home economy primarily characterized by honest industry and production or by indulgence and apathetic consumption? How many screens are in your household? Are there too many? What's the screen time on each of them? Is it too much? What are your kids and you watching on these screens? What content are they and you listening to? Do your kids understand the power of music? You know, the ancients, I think, had it right. They understood music to be the primary means of harmony in the soul. So in Plato's ideal city, music was the first and most important subject in a child's education. We talked about music and liturgy. Do we understand the power music has in the souls of our children, ourselves? Would you say that the ubiquity of digital technology has been a blessing or a curse in your home overall? What measures have you taken to think and act rightly in mediating and monitoring this? Do you have any regrets in this arena of oversight and leadership? Are you going to change anything if you do? Do your children see you and your wife as the primary teachers in their life? Or is that something that's outsourced? Do you understand yourself to bear the primary responsibility of educating your children in the formation of Christian maturity and virtue? What are you doing toward this end? Are you and your wife unified in this endeavor? What things would you be willing to give up if you're not? Is the maintenance of a certain standard of living on a dual income something to be grasped at the expense of unity and peace in your home? Do your children see you sacrifice financially for the spiritual well-being of them and your wife? In all your various responsibilities, men, where in priority does your station of husband and father fit on that scale? These are assessment questions. These are things to ponder. And if we're honest, we all have serious reservations about answering some of them with confident affirmation. So we have failed in our duties as fathers and husbands, and we know that. We will continue to fail. But we want the grace of God to give us repentance and a vision for faithful leadership moving forward. And that's where we begin. We begin in failure, but we don't want to end in failure. We want faithfulness. Faithfulness. And that doesn't, that doesn't guarantee perfection. So I want to do something today, and I'm, I want to be careful with the time. Um, I want to take the threefold offices of Christ, the prophet, priest, and king framework. And I want to, in using how the Heidelberg Catechism applies that framework to individual Christians, I want to take that and extrapolate it a little bit and apply it directly to the role of fathers in the home and their function as um, teachers and those who are discipling their family. So I want to I want to uh, trace everything. I want to start with uh, the, the catechism and then use that to get very practical uh, when it comes to discipleship in the home and defining and giving a vision um, and a layout of what that might be uh, based on that concept. So uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, question 31, teaches 
that Jesus is called the Christ because Christ means the anointed one. And he was, the, he was ordained by God and anointed by the Spirit for his work as a prophet, a priest, and a king. But even more striking is the way that the catechism then applies this threefold office to us as we are in Christ. So after asking, but why art, uh, art thou called a Christian? Question 32, the catechism answers this way. It says, because I am a member of Christ by faith and thus am a partaker of his anointing, that so I may, one, confess his name, that's a prophetic function, two, that I may present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, that would be a priestly anointing, and three, that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin and Satan in this life and afterwards reign with him eternally over all creatures, which matches the kingly function of Christ. So by virtue of being in Christ by faith, which we as Christians are, the catechism says you inherit these offices in a limited way. So Jesus, of course, is our mediator. He mediates the covenant between us and God. He's our prophet to teach us. He's our priest to sacrifice, intercede, and bless us. And he's our king to rule and guide us. He serves all three functions for us. So because of our union with him, we share in these offices, again, in a very limited way, but yet a very powerful way. And so you, men of God in this room, from the least to the greatest, no matter what your other offices may be or your other responsibilities, you are all office bearers by union with Christ. This is not really an optional thing. It's just the way things are. So understanding this and applying it is what I want to pay attention to. So insofar as you uh, function in these offices by being united with Christ, these have implications directly for what discipleship looks like or should look like in the home. So how do you play these three roles in your household? That's the question that I want to consider. So let's take uh, the idea of profit. There's a general confusion just out there uh, on the function of a prophet for not thinking carefully about what a prophet really is. I think, uh, what do you think of when you think prophet just initially? What comes to mind? Prophecy, prophet. Huh? Huh? Moses, okay, but not, not a figure like an idea. What's the, what's... What does a prophet do? Tells the future, right. Predicts the future. Well, in, in fact, they start, some, some prophets actually do that under inspiration, but that's not their primary function in Scripture. The primary function of a prophet is what in the Bible? Proclamation. That's right. Proclamation. Right? They are proclaiming the Word of God to His people. And sometimes they end up telling the future by doing that when God reveals it, but that's not their primary function, okay? So um, the essential task of the prophet is to really be God's spokesman to the people. So in your role as a prophet in the home, you are to confess your own faith and speak forth the counsel of God given in the scriptures. That is your prophetic function as a father and a husband. You don't add to the Bible's teaching but you rather expound it to make its message and application clear to your, to, your, to your family. In short, with your life and with your words, you proclaim and apply the word of God in your home as a prophet. 
And so you are a teacher by virtue of being a prophet. All of you are teachers in your home. And to teach, I want to lay out just a few principles real quickly here. To teach, you must first be a learner, by the way. There's no teaching without learning. In fact, I just came across, I was listening to Leonard Bernstein, strangely enough. YouTube's an amazing world. <laughs> I was listening to Leonard Bernstein, the, the, the great uh, American composer, uh, conductor. And I was listening to him, uh, just a, an amazing guy, whatever else you can say about him. Quirky, crazy, brilliant, genius. He was talking about teaching and learning. And he was saying he was talking about the German language. He said in German, which I do not know, the word for learner, which is learner, learner, and the word for teaching, whatever that is, I can't pronounce it, uh, actually come from the same root in the language. Learner and teacher are really etymologically rooted in the same in the same uh, thing. And so he was making the point that you know to be a teacher is to be a learner. You can't separate the two. And to understand what that means, you've got to have both of them. In fact, he even uses uh, the idiom like when, it, when uh, Will, uh, when you're, I don't know, I don't know if this ever happened, I'm just making something up. When your uh, grandma slapped you uh, on the bottom when you, done, when you did something wrong when you were a kid, you said, that'll learn you something. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that, but you've heard that phrase, right? That'll learn you something. How are we using the word learn? Well, we're using it to say that'll teach you something, but we say learn. Well, why do we do that? Well, because almost inherently... We see the connection between those two concepts, right? Teaching is learning, learning is teaching. So to be a to be a teacher in your home automatically means to be a learner. Are you a learner? What are you learning? What are you reading? What are you studying? What does that look like for you? You also want to teach with passion. Uh, the um, Puritans had this word unction they used in the pastoral office of preaching the word. Uh, they the, the gold standard in preaching was to have unction. It wasn't enough just to have the words right. This had to be uh, joined with that spiritual component of actually representing Christ to a congregation and speaking with unction. Now, I don't take it that far in the home. I'm not saying that every time you stand before your children and wife, you have to have unction. Uh, but I'm giving that a sort of a, sort of that's the gold standard for teaching, the teaching ministry. Um, have life in your teaching. Don't make it something that's a tag-on. We all, I mean, kids know, uh, kids can detect um, pretense a mile away. They know when you're in it or when you're not. They know when you're doing it just to check off the box. And they learn that system. They learn those habits. Um, uh, students learned to, to work for the grade, right? Not for the joy of the work, but for the grade. Why? But they, because they see some of the artificiality that can come with that. And that's natural, but we have to learn. That our teaching has to be um, an overflow of what's happening already in our own souls. Otherwise, it will be artificial. And sometimes that's where it needs to start. You just need to start doing it, even if it feels weird and is artificial. Start there, but grow into teaching with passion. Teach through family worship. And I want to address family worship specifically here in a little bit. But this daily family worship ought to be really the foundation of your fatherly teaching role in your home. You always have opportunities to teach. You're teaching when you're not even, you don't even know you're teaching. But in a formal way, the family worship is really the foundation of this. Um, be determined that over a period, let's say of two decades, you have a child in your home, that you're going to worship with those children and you're going to teach them the whole counsel of God. Your home is to be 
kind of like a little church. Not in every way. I don't want to make a strong analogy there. It doesn't replace the church, of course. But it is like a little church. There is an altar in your home in which you are to serve as an instructing prophet, teaching your children God's precious truths. And you're not to just address the mind. We're not trying to, we're not trying to win uh, Bible trivia games. We want to address the mind, but also the conscience, the heart, and the will, the affections of our children with the truths of God. There's an art to this. There's no formula. So um, I have some notes here about practical things. I want to skip that for now because I don't know if we're going to have time to cover it all. Also, you need to teach by example. As a prophet, you're teaching by example. We always teach our children because they're always reading the books of our lives. They're looking at us. They're watching us. They're watching us react. And um, Christy and I brought our kids home and, and homeschooled them, uh, not because of COVID, because we <laughs> we wanted to, and uh, uh, before all the COVID stuff happened. And I'm, I, it's really interesting. To, that's another discussion, but it's interesting what COVID has done for um, educational philosophy and the way it's challenged people's assumptions about education, which is, I think, a good thing overall. But nonetheless, uh, being with our children so much, I work from home, we educate our children in the home, we're with our children a lot. Boy, you, I mean, we know our children represent us in our sin, but it really becomes pretty evident when you're around them all the time. <laughs> you're like, wow. We, and oftentimes, Christy and I, especially when we first started doing it, uh, we would often just resort to the bedroom at, after bedtime and say, what are we doing wrong <laughs> Something's not right here. And when we're tempted to point the finger at any one of our children's sin, we always come back to one of us reminds the other, well, that's you. No, that's you. <laughs> and, no, that's you. That's us. And so, but it's always right. We can't deny it. Of course it is us. It's us because our kids are learning from us, right? And this is the great way that you become discipled through discipling your children. Men, you become honed and refined through this process of leading your family in discipleship. So this iron sharpens iron isn't just buddy-buddy type stuff. Iron, you're, you're being sharpened by your responsibilities in your home. Uh, embrace that. Embrace that. Find joy in that. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Um, and it's challenging, though. Challenging. We, we question sometimes whether or not we're even doing a good job. Um, but we, we keep going to the Lord in prayer and asking for help. You also want to teach by sharing your life with your children. Uh, you're not just a teacher, of course. So Paul, in his, in his letters, of course, we see him being very open and frank about his problems, about his afflictions, about what's concerning him, um, about his own weaknesses, and you need to be transparent like that to your children. Um, don't spill your guts and don't tell them all your secrets um, all the time. But they need to know that uh, they really under they they you are really accessible to them. So in your prophetic role, um, you need to 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 live with your children and alongside them. Don't always just speak from the outside. Speak from within the life of a family. Brother, what's the balance? Like, 
You are. You are. Uh, hey, I got some news for you, Sam. Well, I mean, the cop-out answer is wisdom because this is a this is a case-by-case, nuanced situation, right? Um, uh, so there's no formula for this, Sam. And it depends it, the age of your children, the context, who's present, who's not, right? One thing we've had to learn in my home is um, I have a I have a bad habit of addressing problems in the company of those who really don't need to be privy to that conversation. And this is something I've had to really train myself to do. Who's present right now? Who's listening? Because I've got I've got some nosy people in my house uh, who like to listen in on you know these sorts of things. And and so you know that just it just it takes wisdom. It takes it takes a discernment in those situations. Um, you know, being being vulnerable to a certain degree, but you don't have to air your dirty laundry for your children uh, like you would privately with your wife, right? They're not. They don't. They don't deserve that kind of uh, privacy. Nor, nor is it helpful to them, right? Because that's another question: Is it even helpful for them to know this? And if it's not, it's not part of the conversation. But as your kids get older, I mean, I've got a 13-year-old now in my house, right? You, the issues I'm dealing with with Aaron right now, and the and the questions he has, and the pro, and the sins that are uh, hit or proclivities for him, those are very different than what I'm what I'm dealing with with Benjamin. So our conversations look very different. And the kind of things I share with my my 13-year-old, my six-year-old would not even know what I'm talking about. You see what I'm saying? So there's a balance there. It's a good it's good to be thinking about that though. That's a good point. It's important. And, it, and sharing your life in that way, too. I mean, kids love to hear stories about their parents and when they were their age, right? I mean, that's just part, that's part of it. They love. Sometimes a table conversation will go there, and then they're like, you did what? Um, yeah. Uh, coming from the perspective of just, you know, a kid who's grown up, because I'm like Sam, I'm not a dad. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. 
And so it's like, you know, as I've gotten older, um, there are a lot of things that my dad has provided me or entrusted me with that, for one, you know, I might have gotten to the point where I would have seen it anyway. Um, and, or to the point where I'm just old enough to where I can understand more, you know, because my own faults, my own sins, are looking, I can start to look more and more like adult problems and adult sins, you know, and less like kid problems. So, uh, so as I've been able to kind of understand more what it's like for a man to struggle with things, um, and those, the things that a man will struggle with, um, you know, he, he's kind of brought me alongside and helped me to understand how, how he is dealing with those things. And I feel like it's only helpful when you have some sort of ability to relate to that and to kind of understand what it means for him. Otherwise, I think if you're too young and he tells you about kind of like a, an adult problem that he's dealing with, then you're kind of like, oh no, you know, my dad's got this like big problem, but really it's like <laughs> everybody's got to do it. Yeah, that's a great point. You're right. And there is, there is too much too soon, for sure. Um, and again, a wisdom... And the circumstances really, um, it really takes that to, to, to manage it well. I, I'm hypersensitive in, in my case. I, I've, um, I grew up, I lived through two divorces by the time I left the home. Um, my household was a wreck. Um, and I was bound and determined. I mean, and it's sinful in the sense it was selfish for me. It was like, I'm going to do whatever it takes, by golly. And, I'll, and, and my independent spirit was like, I don't care what happens I'm having a family. My kids are going to love me. We're going to, do, you know, we're, we're, we're doing this come hell or high water. And I still have that. But thankfully, uh, I also am a Christian and I can balance that with biblical values and, and see how they, where they co- uh, coalesce and, when, and where they really don't. Um, but uh, we've given so much. Sometimes, sometimes you can overdo it is what I'm saying. You can overdo that just because you're so, I'm so, Concerned, right? I don't want for my children what I had, or I don't, I don't want the lack, right? I didn't have a father growing up. I didn't have those conversations, and we're having those conversations in my house. By golly, <laughs> that's you know, but I have to be careful. <clears throat> Some great, great thoughts here. Um, you know, we could spend we could spend days uh, on, on a lot. Each of these, we could spend a lot of time on. Um, you want to train for holistic maturity in your prophetic role. Your training, uh, when we say teach, we have to have we have to broaden our scope of teaching. Unfortunately, we teach. We think, well, oh, teach curriculum, grade, whatever. Uh, no, we're teaching in the sense of formation. In fact, the the French word for for teaching, for education rather, is really means formation. Education is formation. So I'd rather, I wish we would just change that if that's what we're actually doing. Let's stop calling it education and call it formation because that's what we really want to be. That's what we really mean by that. So your role as a formationer, I don't know how to say it right, um, your role in, as a prophet in the home is to form in your children, by God's grace and his power, piety in the hearts of your kids. You're forming piety in their hearts. You're, you're teaching them what to love and how to love, loving the right things. If you give them that, okay, they may they may not know all the intricacies of Euclidean geometry when they graduate high school. But if you can give them the right loves, they're, they're golden, right? They leave your, your home loving the right things. That's, that's what you can give them. Um, 
So um, in, in, just in wrapping up the prophetic uh, portion of this, our prophetic role in the home places great responsibilities on us. If you think the, of the responsibilities just in this area, massive, massive. How can we live up to this? Well, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want us to throw in the towel. I don't think we, we are, but it, sometimes it feels like we, we need to, uh, because of our inadequacies. But rather, take that frustration or at least that sense of lack and turn it into uh, confession and prayer. Ask God to make up for it. I'm lacking in the, these things. Help me. Turn that energy and frustration maybe into something productive. So have that attitude. You're, you're forward-leaning. You're always moving forward. You may, you're, not, you're a long way off, but you're leaning forward. Uh, you're not just standing there, and you're certainly not leaning backward. So that's where we, that's where we go here. Um, so a simple confession. I'm a sinful human being, but Lord, help me confess my sin, my inc- inconsistent walk, my ignorance of the Bible, and my failure to evangelize my children. Let me be grieved by these failures, turn to you for grace to realize my covenantal responsibilities, and take refuge in you, leaning on your covenant promises, because that's what we really have here. We're not doing this on our own. We have the promises of God behind it, so we have every right to ask him to help us in it. And looking to Jesus, your son, as our model, our guide, and our strength, help us. So in the long run, the faithful prophet father will marvel at God's grace covering his sins and making his efforts bear fruit far beyond the limits of mere human power and wisdom. This is a supernatural work that you've been called to mediate. Pretty amazing. God's not setting us up to fail as husbands and fathers. He gives us the marvelous grace of being his assistants in teaching our families. So let's t- take it seriously and, uh, and run with it. Uh, the issue, uh, or the, the topic of priest in the home, let me address that here. Uh, what does it look like to be a, well, let me read the catechism uh, in question 31. It says, uh, it asks why Jesus is called the Christ, of course he was anointed, to be our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us, and makes continual intercession with the Father for us. That's what Christ is doing for us. That's why we have even the right to come to the Father, say in prayer, is because Christ is perennially interceding for us as priest. So, Christ's priestly work was his loving self-sacrifice for our sins and his compassionate intercession for us, which it continues to be. So the Bible says that we who trust in Christ are a royal priesthood, right? First Peter. Authorized and anointed to perform priestly service in God's spiritual temple. We can never repeat the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ for sin. That's not our job. It's not something we could even do. Because Jesus has already finished that work, and he made his elect people perfect in him. Nor do we stand as mediators ourselves between God and our family. Only Christ does that. We're not taking that place. There's only one mediator. So your children do not need to go to God through you or through me to get to Christ, who is the only way. But yet, because of our union with Christ, we actively share in his priesthood, just like we do in his prophetic ministry in our homes. We share in that priesthood of Christ in our homes as fathers and husbands. The Bible calls redeemed people priests, uh, uh, multiple times in Revelation, actually. 
It's, a, it's an interesting word study in the uh, book of Revelation on, on the word priest, which is just imagery of Old Testament. Um, and these priests offer, we offer, as priests, we offer sacrifices of praise to God in worship, in our liturgy, and we also are interse- uh, we intercede for all men, is what First uh, Timothy tells us. So we function as intercessors, just as Christ does, but not obviously in the same capacity. But in this role, what does it look like to be a priest in your home? I want to I point out two things. Um, first is sacrificing for your wife. This is really the primary means that you apply your priestly role in the house. It has to do primarily with, with uh, your relationship with your wife, um, I would suggest. Paul says, of course, in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. William Gouge in 1622 wrote that all the duties of a husband are comprised under this one word, love. What's my responsibility, husband? Love. When we love with a Christ-like love, we serve as spiritual priests who offer a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. We know this is true. Paul, in Ephesians 5, says, Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So what does it mean to love your wife like a priest? Like a priest? Kind of odd to think that way, but this is, I think, a very clear application. Well, Simply, but profoundly, as Paul says, it's loving her as Christ loved the church. The church is a particular group of people whom God has redeemed and has called to salvation. Though the Lord commands all people to turn back to him, he has a particular and exclusive love for his elect, for the church. And men, that is our love for our wives. So we must love our wives as priests with a particular and exclusive love in which no other woman may share in. So we reserve that love as a seal on our hearts to our wives. With this love, we're not just avoiding adultery, right? Not doing the bad things, but rather we're intentionally pouring out our affections upon our wife, our wives. Um, in regular and, and meaningful ways. So, could we say to our wives, like the Song of Solomon does, you have ravished my heart. Set your, set your love as a seal upon my heart. You may not realize on day-to-day basis, I think you do in theory, how important it is for your wife, our wives, to know that we have forsaken all others to love her alone until death separates us. That is amazingly important for your wives to know that and be reminded of that regularly. And you can't even uh, estimate, really, I think, the security and happiness your children receive when they see you loving their mother that way. This is a powerful priestly role in the home. And then, of course, it's powerful in the opposite, too. When we don't do that, when we don't do that, we're also uh, damaging, doing damage. So, Uh, Ephesians 5, of course, Christ gave himself for his church. We give ourselves in our homes to our wives and serve them in that way. So we give them our our thoughts, our time, 
our tenderness, our love, our care, our touch. Do random, special, and surprising things to reinforce that love for her. This can, uh, God can change the world with men loving their wives this way. And also, we, as priests, we intercede for our children as intercessors. We do the work of prayer and intercession in analogously the way that Christ does for us. We go to the Lord for our children. If you remember Job, of course, uh, in Job 1, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. He was perfect and upright, one that feared God, eschewed evil. What was his morning practice? What did he do in the morning? It, hint, it fits with what I'm saying here. He made sacrifices for his children. Why? Well, they might have sinned against God. This wasn't the five-minute devo. Okay? He was slaughtering bulls on the altar for his children because he was upright. We have Christ, but we turn to Christ and we present our children to Christ because he, he's their sacrifice, of course. But we give our children to Christ each day. We give them, we intercede for them. That's a priestly service. It's a priestly role. A lot can be said about that. And then finally, I want to just briefly, uh, in a little bit I have left, talk about uh, kingship in the home. Uh, and we like this idea, right? But uh, we've got to think about it biblically. I'm the king of my castle. Uh, well, that obviously kingship comes with great responsibility. Um, the Heidelberg Catechism explains Christ's anointing as king, saying this, quote, He is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our eternal king, who governs us by his word and spirit, and who defends and preserves in us the enjoyment of that salvation that he has purchased for us. So like David, the most favored king of Israel, Jesus serves as a king of his people by ruling over us with justice and destroying our enemies with his might. Second Samuel 8. So, the Son of God is the Most High King, supreme in his authority and sovereign in his power. Christ alone can bind our conscience with sacred obligation and change our hearts. That's the power Christ has in us and in our family. Now, we as kings represent his kingship in uh, a number of ways, but really defending our children, and this doesn't mean just defending them against uh, bullying, for example, although that would be part of it. We're going to go to the defense of our children. But also, we're talking primarily spiritual defense. We are going to bat for them. We are looking out for their souls, okay, as a good king would for his subjects. We're looking out for the souls of our children. We're looking out for dangers and prospective problems that we can step into and use those to protect and also to teach. That's part of our kingly duty as fathers. Um, and we also discipline our children. And uh, this is a whole other topic, right? The discipline of children, we can discuss this. Uh, a lot. But of course, in our discipline, we represent Christ in that. We discipline out of love, not out of anger or frustration. And uh, again, discipline is a, I've got a lot here, but we're not going to have time to talk about it today. Um, talk about using wisdom there, Sam. Discipline. So, uh, real quick, family worship. Um, I want to raise a couple of obje- objections that come up sometimes with, resp- with respect to family worship. And then I'm gonna, we'll have about five minutes for questions. Um, you ever feel like we have? Uh, our family doesn't have time for family worship. 
We just don't have time for it. It's too early. It's too late. It's not the right time or we're just too busy or whatever the case is. Well, that's true. You're too busy. That's the first thing. If you're too busy for family worship, then you're just too busy or you're not managing your time well or something. Um, but at the same time, we know, right, deep down, that's really kind of a cop-out, right? If we have time for Netflix, if we have time for sports, we have time for Instagram browsing, uh, then we have time for family worship. In fact, we might want to replace some of those activities with family worship. Um, average, average American screen time before COVID, what do you, anyone guess? Average American screen time per day, that's on any uh, electronic device consuming content is what they say. Consuming content. Three? Four hours. The statistics that I researched were four hours a day, average American screen time. And again, there's lots of complexity in determining that number. But after COVID, what do you think? Six on average. Okay? Four to six hours a day on average American screen time. And now we're seeing screens in the hands of kids that are wee high. And some of them are spending even more time on them a day. Uh, my point is, uh, we have time. We, we've got time for family worship. If you have ample time for recreations and pleasures, but no time for dedicated family worship, then we should re- remember the warning in 2 Timothy 3, 4, and 5 that warns us about people who love pleasures more than God. They have a form of godliness, but deny its power. So we take the time each day, each week, uh, to remember God, to instruct in his word, to praise him, to pray for others uh, before him. Um, that's our duty. We cannot, we should rather say, it's not like we can't afford the time to spend to God. No, we can't afford not to do that. Think about what, what what's at stake. I'm not good at leading family worship. I can't do it. I'm not eloquent. I don't speak well. Um, it might even be become. It might be coming from a person who really does struggle with those things, and I understand that. I'm not. I'm not saying that's not a good uh, uh, reservation to have, but I want to just give some encouragement here. Oliver Haywood, a Puritan minister, encouraged his readers on this point. He said, "God stands not upon gift, eloquence, or ready utterance. The, sacri- the sacrifices of, of God are a broken spirit." If you have that, you have everything you need to lead your family in worship. You don't have to have all the right words. You have to have the right heart. And only God can give that. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. You don't have to have the skills of a rhetorician to lead your family in worship. Um, we're about out of time, so or my time. I've got about five minutes of questions. Anything that came up today... Uh, in this talk that you, you want to continue talking about? Any questions? I hope this framework of prophet, priest, and king as applied to fathers and husbands has been helpful. Yeah. What would you say in terms of, if you look at each of your children, obviously at different stages and whatever, in terms of this question of discipleship, of forming Christ in them, to what degree do we as fathers or for that matter, as we look at our lives, and I might add that our lives should be looking at us because God gave them to us to form Christ in us. So this would be a task for a wife and a mother, not just a father, because she is his helper in the mission. Um, 
I think you ask to what degree, I'd say to a high degree is my, is my understanding. Um, and of course, as they get older, their sins become more acute, right? You start to see their tendencies more and more the older they get. So you can have, you have more data to go on. But, but crafting, okay, the scripture um, in Proverbs, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, there's been a number of, of controversies related to the exact interpretation of that. Interestingly, one of them uh, is that it's not train up a child in the way, his go, the way he should go, and he will not depart from it. That is, train him right, and he'll never do anything bad. Okay, that's, that's one. But actually, a more nuanced interpretation is train up a child, and, and it gets into the, you know, the Hebrew nuances and all that. Train up a child in, in, in the way that he needs. So, in other words, train up a child according to his frame. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. So I, I'm not suggesting, I'm kind of like forcing that application in this particular situation. But I think that's, that's right. We look at the frame of our children. We, we observe what their tendencies are. And we do the work of honing in on those and helping them overcome them. Distinction, question, uh, one I can't answer in a, a one minute, but um, I, I answer that broadly with another distinction, and that is a distinction between formative discipline and corrective discipline. And formative discipline is the training part that, that Randy's talking about. Um, we are disciplining our children by, by, ha, by ha, it's liturgy, really. Liturgy is our formal, is our formal uh, training program for our families. We the culture of our homes are, are forming our, our children in habits, whether good or bad. And so, as in, you know, when there's conflict in the house, is there a liturgy for how your family resolves conflict? Well, if there, there probably is. It may not be what you like, but there's something there. There's a way you guys handle conflict, good or bad. And that's actually training them formatively. Now, correction comes in. And this is where we are applying this, the principle, the law. We come in and we say, you know what? This crossed the line. There are, there are consequences. You have obligations to hold that law. And there are consequences, right? Blessings and curses. So that's part of it as well. There is corrective discipline. But there should be a much greater emphasis on formative discipline and corrective discipline. If you're putting out fires all the time, you're, you're, on, you're on the wrong side of that equilibrium. You want to be... Uh, having formative discipline uh, through habit, through liturgy, through the right things, right? Um, loving God, love your neighbor. And then corrective discipline comes in to make corrections to that when they get off track. Um, I, that doesn't fully answer your question, but that's just what comes to mind. I had a store manager once I worked under, and I made the wife of the brilliant cliche, and he's like a 
coming alongside them. Uh, just like God does us, He's sympathetic to our weak frame. I'm dealing with a five-year-old or thirteen-year-old. It's tough being thirteen, and it's easy for me to crush a thirteen-year-old all the time, rather than come alongside them and put myself in those shoes and to help them overcome whatever. And I, again, it's, it takes what you said about wisdom. There is a time to put the hammer down, but uh, not all the time. Absolutely. And I'm reminded of this last thought here. Lance, uh, you remember because you went down to, uh, Prov- was it not Providence? What's that school in uh, Houston we, we visited? Covenant. So it's interesting that principle you just said, they, they try to model that in the way, like if, if a student has to sit out for lunch because they were misbehaving in the, in the classroom, the teacher, the teacher doesn't go sit with the teachers. If you've got a trouble student, that teacher goes and stays with the student while they're in timeout or whatever it is. Based on that very principle right there. That we don't just, you know, pronounce a judgment and send them away. But we... We go with them in their sin and stand by them. That's it's a beautiful thing. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. Well, um, let's let's pray. I have a, a just a brief prayer here from yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't see your hand there. In thinking about all this, why is it that the preacher kids always? <laughs> Touching on what Randy said, or something that Randy said last night, okay? And seeking to keep them down the straight and narrow path, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. You can't make them be silent. You lead them to be You can't make them. You should be up here. Let me close with this prayer from a 17th century Puritan, and I hope you'll find encouragement here, and I'll leave you with this. Let's pray. Lord, let those that are united to me in tender ties be precious in your sight and devoted to your glory. Sanctify and prosper my domestic devotion, my domestic instruction, my domestic discipline, my domestic example that my house may be a nursery for heaven and a church as the garden of the Lord, enriched as trees of righteousness of thy planting for thy glory. Let not those in my family fall short of heaven at last, but grant that the promising appearances of tender consciences, of soft hearts, of the alarms and delights of thy word may not be blotted out, but may bring forth judgment unto victory in all those whom I love. In Christ's name, amen.